0: It is now Super Bowl Wednesday, and at Inside the Pile on the podcast, we are all ready to go for Sunday, even though it's still four days away at this point. Chuck Zotta and Mark Schofield here uh, talking to you uh, just a few days before the biggest game of the year. And, Mark, the buzz continues to build as we get closer to game day.
1: Yeah, and this you know it usually happens. Last night we're recording this Tuesday. Last night was the big media night. NFL decided to move media day to media night and have to be a prime time event. So we're getting the usual stories that are coming about. You know the dumb questions that were asked. The reporters from all over the world that descended on the uh, San Francisco area to ask some questions. So hopefully now we can really start talking about the game and the X's and O's and all that stuff. But got to go through it each year
0: media day must be is it the dumbest media event in not just sports but just in general in the world
1: right now it's pretty close what was interesting and in, from going through the twitter timeline last night the juxtaposition between Super Bowl Media Day and all the, all the coverage of the Iowa caucuses was just like two, like completely media-driven events. It was pretty crazy to try to like scroll through Twitter. But as far as just a one-off, I think Media Day has to be the the top. I understand why it happens. I understand, you know, the need for it, but it's become this own just crazed event that serves no purpose yet serves all the purpose that it needs all in itself it's just strange.
0: Yeah, I think we've given just about enough time to it yeah. at this point. So, let's uh we're not going to talk a ton of super bowl today. We're doing that in our shorter podcasts over the course of the week. So, make sure that you grab those off SoundCloud or make sure that you subscribe just so you're getting all of our podcasts. We do 15-minute ones uh every day aside from Wednesday. So, let's uh let's dig into some of the articles that we've posted uh up on Inside the Pylon over the last couple days here. And I want to start with one uh, that you put together, Mark. And it references Cardale Jones and talks about the dangers of box score scouting.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it, what, what I kind of mean by that is I'm not saying that people out there are actually just looking at a box score, looking at a stat sheet and putting together scouting reports or things like that. But what I'm trying to do, and this isn't the first sort of piece that I've written in this style, is take a look at a play that has almost a negative result or does have a negative result for a quarterback. But illustrate that either the quarterback did everything right or I came away more impressed with the quarterback than I did, you know, just kind of looking at the play holistically, that I learned something positive about that player. I've written about two interceptions, one from Jared Goff and one from Paxton Lynch that, again, on the box sheet, their interceptions, but they made, you know, the right reads. They, you know, worked within the flow of the play. They adjusted to a blitz, things like that that made me say, oh, you know what? When you look at this and break down the entire context of the play, the quarterback actually did some really good things here. In the books, it's an interception. And for, for example, in that Jared Goff article, it was one of five he threw that night. But, you know, he got crushed after that game against Utah. But when you look at the film, the film doesn't lie.
0: And in in, in in particular, I think that oftentimes, you know, a lot of people. There's been a movement in, in just about every sport towards analytics in the last 15 years, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. In certain sports, we see it in baseball that we've been able to learn quite a bit more about the game uh, through analytics. Basketball, we've learned quite a bit more in, but football has much fewer independent events than either of those sports. And something just as simple as an interception, it's not so much. You know, it could it could be on the Quarterback, it could be on the receiver, it could be on a lineman who got the quarterback hit, and a pass goes, you know, flailing somewhere else. There are a number of different ways that an interception can occur, and I think that's the point you're trying
1: to get at. Right, and you know, sometimes it's a simple fact as the guys on the other side of the ball are really good too. You know, and you can do just about everything right and make a pretty good throw, make the right read, but the guy breaks on it extremely well because he's a very talented defensive back. The article that we're really talking about here, there's Cardale Jones piece. And I've really just started to dig into Cardale Jones this week. I'm going to really start digging into some of the underclassmen that are coming out, having spent the most of my past couple of weeks, looking at the senior bowl quarterbacks. And I'm looking at a play from Ohio state's game against Penn state this season. And it goes in the books as a sack. And when you watch the play develop pre-snap, you realize that Jones has a pretty good understanding of protection schemes and he identifies a blitz pre-snap. It's a situation where he's got the tight end in a slot formation to the right. So he's staggered away from the right tackle and Penn state has their base four, three defense on the field and they walk the outside linebacker out over the tight end in the slot. As Cardale starts going through the cadence, that linebacker then crashes down towards the right edge. Now, They've still got five to block five. It's a four-man front. But what Cardale does is he sees that, stops his cadence, brings that tight end into the formation, into a win alignment, to act as an extra blocker, takes him out of the route structure, changes the protection scheme, brings him in as an extra blocker to prevent or help against that potential blitz. He makes a couple of few adjustments before the play starts. That linebacker then decides he's not going to blitz and drops into a usual outside linebacker alignment, just shaded outside to the right shoulder of the right tackle. The play still goes into the books as a sack because Nassib, the talented defensive end for Penn State, is able to beat the right tackle around the edge and still gets to Jones before the, for the sack. Now, if you look at that play just from the snap, to the end of the play, to the sack, you might think, oh, he needs to get out, get rid of it quicker. He needs to, you know, break the pocket, He needs to do something else. But that's okay. What I was more impressed with was the pre-snap identification of the potential blitz and not just the ability to make the adjustment, but the fact that the coach and staff had the confidence in him to make those sort of pre-snap adjustments, make those protecting changes, because you'll hear a lot going through this draft process about, oh, this quarterback wasn't allowed to make protection game calls. That came from the line. Teams do it different ways, but the fact that Cardale Jones, his first year as a full-time starter, was entrusted with that by Urban Meyer makes me pretty confident that this is a guy that when he enters the NFL, are there things that he'll need to refine to his game? Of course. But there are things that he's done just in the sort of play snap pre-snap, pre-snap play identification stuff that makes me think that his transition might go pretty well as he moves to the NFL.
0: Is this another reason why, and we hear this quite often, that when we talk about scouting, you scout traits as
1: opposed to production in college? Yeah, I I think so. And there are a number of reasons why you try to look at the traits because, you know, we've got the great piece that we've got on inside the pylon from Dan Hatman, the former scout that he built off Matt Miller's scouting rules, you know, scout the traits, not the production. What you're really looking for is, you know, Teams run so many different schemes that what a guy can do might not be what he was asked to do in college. So you you know might have a guy, let's look at Paxton Lynch for a second. He's a guy that's a former wing tee quarterback that's basically just running the ball all the time. Yep. Now he's sort of in this like spread scheme. But look at how he can throw. Look at the downfield accuracy. Look at the ability to throw in the move. The ability to drive the ball into tight throwing windows. That's a guy that he's never been asked to do it, but he has the tools to maybe play in a Bruce Arians vertical-style passing scheme or kind of what Hugh Jackson was running when he was out in Oakland with Carson Palmer. Um, so look at what a guy can do from play to play trait-wise. Don't focus on what he was asked to do in college because they're often two wildly different things.
0: Yeah, you just end up with guys who you know have the skills to do one thing but are often asked to do something else by an offensive coordinator or a head coach.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's, you know, one of the articles that we've got up. Another article that you've got up for us is on Brad Nortman and some inconsistencies in his game. Can you kind of take us through what you've seen from the tape?
0: Yeah, so I went through uh, the last couple of years of Brad's tape, actually, uh, earlier this week, and in particular, I want to focus on what I saw this year and-, and specifically some of the trends that I saw this year. And if you look over the course of this season, uh, Brad Nortman had uh, 51 punts in what are called open field situations this year. Open field situation is anywhere from a team's own 1-yard line up to their own 40-yard line. So it's a 40-yard stretch of field that is generally regarded as, you know, being deep in your own territory. And of those 51 punts, okay, Norman has a huge leg. He can absolutely bomb the ball. He had 9 punts over 60 yards this year. He had another 12 punts beyond that uh, that were over 50. So 21 punts total out of 51 over uh, 50 yards so 40% of his kicks are over 50 yards there so he has a big big leg he actually led the league in open field punting average back in 2013 so you you know that he has a big leg there what I saw that was a little bit concerning to me and as you head into a what's I think expected to be a pretty tightly contested Super Bowl, a game that is going to be uh, a little bit more of a defensive battle uh, than some that we've seen in recent years, is Norman also does have a slight propensity to occasionally get some shanks on the ball, and that's it's it's a real problem. And in those fifty-one kicks from his own from within his own forty-yard line, he had seven. That ended up being shanked one way or another and went less than 40 yards. Okay, so you're talking, you know, this isn't something that happens once or twice a year. This is something that happened on about 15% of his kicks coming out of his own
1: zone. Okay, that's, you know, that's, that's a problem potentially. Right. And it, that, you know, seven shanks out of 51, that 15 percent, is that kind of, you know, more than what you'd expect for an NFL punter? I went through and I was I was
0: looking at some of the other comparisons that I had here. And most of the guys that I've looked at in the playoffs, when you talk about a John Ryan, a Ryan Allen, uh, Britt- Britton Colquitt, I'm trying to remember who else I've looked at, uh, Jordan Berry from the Steelers all of those guys they they have them because it happens to everyone but you're generally seeing it in the 8 to 10% range as opposed to that 15% range and and that's you know you talk about this and you say okay you know it's it's something that's happening at a higher probability with norman here and because of that you know you worry about a situation where you know denver does not have a great return unit It's their their punt return unit they use Emmanuel Sanders as their returner this year. It's his first year as a full time punt returner, hasn't really done a whole lot. He's an athletic guy with good quickness, but their punt return unit as a whole has not been overly productive this year. And so from my perspective looking at this, I would rather have a guy that's, you know, a little bit more consistent going against Denver just because I don't think they're a huge threat. But if all you do, if, if you have a kick that only goes 36, 37 yards from your own 10-yard line, all of a sudden you're setting up Peyton Manning with a short field, which, as we saw against New England, is something that he can work with to either get a field goal or a touchdown as opposed to having to drive the ball 60, 70, 80 yards.
1: Now, if you're Gary Kubiak, if you're... Denver's special team coach and you're sitting here and you're doing what you should be listening to the Inside the Pylon podcast instead of getting ready for the Super Bowl and you hear about that inconsistency do you think you know maybe instead of setting up returns we're going to bring pressure we're going to bring some pump blocks maybe make him speed up his steps or something to maybe take advantage of that and force him into one of those inconsistent punts
0: so Carolina back in uh, 2014 during the 2014 season they actually had two punts that were blocked during that season they didn't have any this year they cleaned up their protection I watched uh, just about every kick I only saw out of I think they had 71 punts this year they only had two that had any sort of real pressure on Nortman so it wasn't due to pressure uh, that you know these kicks were ending up off to the side and shorter than you'd like and the other thing I want to add there uh, Nortman's hang time on his on his kicks that traveled uh, the distance that you'd like to see from that zone was 4.64 seconds When he was shanking the ball off to the side, that hang time was down to around 4.3 seconds, which is still not bad by NFL standards, but it clearly shows you that he's not making great contact with the ball. It's not a case where it's just a directional kick that goes out of bounds. It shows you that there's less force that's going into that ball uh, when it's all said and done there. So if I'm Denver special teams, I probably do try to bring a little bit more pressure. I don't expect to get much off it necessarily just because... You know, blocked punts are so rare just to begin with. It's, it's not something that you see awfully frequently. It's something typically, you know, there's maybe 10 to 12 in an entire NFL season. So it's not something that is a regular occurrence. But maybe you do bring a little bit of extra pressure and say, look, we're only going to get four to five yards per return anyways. Maybe we just sacrifice that and say, let's go for broke and see if we can end up, uh, you know, rattling uh, Nortman a little bit. Maybe you do.
1: Yeah, because I mean, you know, it's not a situation. It's almost a situation where you don't even care if you get home or not. But if you can force him into one of those, you know, sort of shanked kicks that only goes about thirty yards and gets you a short field, that's probably worth it.
0: Exactly, and and, uh, and on the other side, you know, you talk about the punter for the Broncos, Britton Colquitt. Who has been absolutely tremendous, pretty much the last eight to nine weeks, going back into the regular season, uh, has been incredibly good with his directional game. Very consistent. Doesn't have the leg that Nortman does. Typically, only averages around three uh, four point three seven seconds uh, of hang time. But great directional punter and uh, a guy who I just think is a little bit more consistent at this point, And that's the uh, you know that's the guy that I'd like to see. Uh, more than nortman if i were you know on a team out there but uh let's go to our guest for the day we are joined now by jeff risden from RealGM.com. you can also follow him at jeff risden on twitter one of my favorite twitter follows by the way and jeff you are back safely from mobile
2: I am. Yeah, I, it's great to come on and, and hear you talking about punters. I knew it. I knew
0: it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty much a given,
0: Jeff. I'm the most predictable guy ever. I mean, it's it's pretty much. I'm the one who was sitting in the stands in Mobile with a stopwatch out clocking hang time. So let's uh, let's hey, talk.
2: Can I, can I tell you a quick story about that? Yeah. One of my one of my first Senior Bowls down there, uh, I saw um, uh, Tom Morstead when he was at SMU. Come, came down. He was having kids sit in the seats, like up in the stands, and punting the ball to them, like telling them where he was going to kick it to and nailing it, and I thought, wow, that's really, really cool. It's one of my favorite senior bowl experiences was watching Tom Morse do that.
0: (laughs) We used to call that, we used to play punt golf back in the day, actually, at specialist practices, where obviously we had nothing to do most of the time, and so we're out there, and the rule was that you got one drive off the ground, so you got to drive the ball off a kickoff tee, and then the rest of the way you had to use a punt, and you got one putt at the end in order to try to get it where you were going. So you get pretty good at some of those games when that's all you're doing all day, I guess. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's talk about what you saw down at the Senior Bowl. Obviously, you were down there. We uh, got to see you for a little bit. What, what stood out to you more than anything else?
2: Uh, I, I think the, there, was, there was a lot of hype on Carson Wentz going into it, and I think he lived up to it. Uh, and I think uh, he, he solidified himself as a guy who could be the first quarterback off the board. I don't think there's any question he's going to be one of the first two quarterbacks off the board. Uh, he answered a lot of the questions that everybody had about him. Can he handle the pressure of stepping up and playing with, with better competition? You know, can he, uh, Does he have the arm strength? Well, he definitely had that. You know, Has he improved his footwork? Because my big critique on him going in there was that, yeah, he was a great athlete, but he tends to be flat-footed when he was setting up his base. He's up on his toes all the time. You can tell he's worked hard at it. So that that, means, that tells me that he, he knows what he needs to do to get better, uh, and I have a real appreciation for that. Uh, I, I, was, I was very taken aback by just how good he was. Uh wasn't perfect in the red zone drills, and that sort of concerned me a little bit. But then again, that is more a drill for the wide receivers against the cornerbacks than it is for the quarterbacks. But, yeah, it, it, there's still some work there. I, I don't want him starting week one next fall. But uh, I said it when I was on the Shrine game. I had a, an NFL personnel guy tell me that if he'd lit it up at the Senior Bowl, he was going to be a top-five pick. Well, he's definitely a top-five pick. I don't think there's any question about that anymore.
1: Jeff, not to sidetrack it too much from the Senior Bowl, um, but is there a quarterback in this class that you would be comfortable seeing start week one?
2: The only guy I can think of is Connor Cook. Uh, yeah. In my opinion, is Connor Cook. You know, I, I've seen him play live. I, I've seen just about every stamp of his. I think I missed one Michigan State game in the last two years. Uh, I think he has a finite ceiling that is probably not quite what Kirk Cousins' ceiling is with Washington. Right. Uh, and if you're okay with that as your starting quarterback, you know, if you want to build around that with, with solid weapons, Connor Cook can probably handle starting next year for you. But beyond that, I don't really want any of these guys starting. You know, Paxton Lynch—he's still my favorite quarterback in this draft. I don't want him to play next year. I don't think he's ready at all. You know, I, I want to see a lot of development go on. And unfortunately, you know, we, we've seen this, like with Jacksonville, with Blake Boyles. you know, he was supposed to sit his entire rookie season. It just didn't happen. You know, these guys, because they're drafted so high, they do get rushed in. So it, it's going to be a tough one because uh, all these guys need work. Goff out of California has a really high ceiling. I, I think he probably has a higher ceiling than Lynch or Wentz. But at the same time, I see a lot of things with him that, man, there's, there's some real cause for concern. If, if you're playing him next year, he's going to lead the league in interceptions, even if he only plays 10 games. So, right. yeah, there's, I, I don't want anybody playing next year, really.
0: Jeff, when we uh, take a look at this draft, uh, it's, it's a draft that appears to be stronger uh, in top-end talent on the defensive side of the ball than on offense. Where do you see or what did you see last week in terms of players that stood out on uh, defense here?
2: Oh man, the defensive line—they're loaded. I mean, you're looking at guys like, like Austin Johnson out of Penn State. This is a guy. He, I think he's better than Aishon Robinson. I, I really do. And I, and that's no knock on Aishon because I think he's going to be a very good NFL player too. There's so much depth on the interior line. I think we saw Vernon Butler prove that he belongs in the first round, if not the the middle of the first round. You know, just so much defense defensive talent. Hunt Ward out of Illinois criminally misused at illinois goes down there shows that he can play end. did a pretty darn good ziggy Ansa impersonation for the first couple of days there and these are things that you don't expect to see now you do have to take in, into effect, account that the, the offensive tackles were terrible there i think that was the worst overall position group other than jason spriggs i don't think any of those guys can play tackle in the nfl so that has to be factored in but man the, just the defensive line was fantastic. And I thought some of the corners, guys like Harlan Miller and Eric Murray and Maurice Canadi, they all showed that they can play, too. So I love the depth in, like, the second through the fourth round on defense in this draft. I think that's where the real strength is. Uh, And it's definitely swung away from offense. You know, we had all those wide receivers for years. Uh, This is not a good wide receiver class, and I think that showed up in Mobile as well, too.
1: Were there any wide receivers down there in Mobile that kind of, you know, you saw and you thought, okay, well, maybe this guy's not a first round guy, but he's a guy that made himself some money here this week?
2: I, I think Braxton Miller is. And, and I think after we see him run uh, and and do the agility scores at the combine that he's, he claims he's going to put up and what Ohio State people tell me he's going to put up, he's going to wind up in the first round. I'm not that high on him because he, he just doesn't catch the ball all that well yet and doesn't do the mechanics of, of being a receiver all that well yet. But yeah, he, he's a guy that definitely stood out. I, I thought uh, McRoberts uh, from from one of the Missouri directional schools. I thought he he stood out pretty well as a guy who made himself some money, proved that he belonged. That he wasn't the situation wasn't too big for him. I think that's what you always want to see out of the small school guys. And of course Sterling Shepard, man, that that guy's just so smooth. It, it, it was fun to watch him uh, on the limited basis that we got to see him. There, there's a guy who can be an impact player at the next level. A uh, little smaller than you want for and and. My, my issue with him, I'm not sure he's a slot guy. I'm not sure he's an outside guy. It's going to be interesting to see where he plays at the next level because that's, uh, that's fuzzy for me. Oh, yeah, and, and also Jay Lee out of Baylor, I thought, proved that he was more than just a Baylor receiver. I thought he showed some real skills for a bigger receiver and, and definitely has breaking speed. Uh, he apparently is a combine, snub, which is disappointing. I think that's going to limit where he gets drafted. But there's a guy I thought he really helped himself too.
0: Jeff, a guy that uh, Mark and I had talked about over the last week or so, is a uh, fullback from uh, Northwestern, Dan Vitale, who impressed both Mark and myself in receiving drills, but a little bit undersized by modern tight end standards and fullbacks being phased out of a lot of teams' offenses. He's a guy that can probably find somewhere in a good scheme where he can be productive, though, don't you think?
2: Oh, absolutely. I, I, I thought he was the best blocking back that I've seen there in a while. Uh, he, he's better all around for my money than Jolson Fowler was last year, and he went in the fourth round. Uh, better than Michael Burton, who uh, my Lions happened to take in the fifth round. He, he's better than both of those guys. Uh, he rarely touched the ball at Northwestern. He was that, that super back role. Uh, but but he showed that he can catch. He definitely has the blocking chops. Uh, I don't think he can play him at tight end, but I think he can be an H-back and move. And I also think he's going to be a, a just a killer on special teams. Uh, when he gets his head of steam going, he, he's, he's not a guy that, that you want coming at you. He, he's built just like Brian Urlacher. Uh, and kind of plays that same sort of mentality as a fullback. And I I loved it. I thought he made himself a lot of money, too. Earned himself a lot of fans, that's for sure.
1: Jeff, let's talk about this tight end class for a second. We probably don't need to spend too much on it. But did anybody flash to you down in Mobile, or was this just a position group that there really isn't much there?
2: There's a lot of guys that are like third through fifth round picks. And I think Nick Vanette out of Ohio State is the best of the group. Uh, Darian Griswold probably has the most upside. There's a guy, he, he went to Arkansas State as a quarterback, has only been playing a tight end for three years and really showed that he can block. So I, I think that's pretty impressive. He's got the best open field speed of any of the guys there. If you're looking for a guy with upside, that might you know he might only catch ten to twelve passes as a rookie, but but could be a guy who who winds up catching you know fifty for you know seven hundred fifty yards and five touchdowns in a couple of years. I think that those are the two that, that really stood out to me. The rest of the guys, they're all pretty interchangeable to me. If you don't go in the fourth round, okay, wait another round and you'll get get the same guy in the fifth round.
0: Jeff, one other thing, when we and I want to spin back to quarterbacks just for a little bit here. Uh, When we talk about the quarterbacks in this class, and obviously uh, you talked about Carson Wentz and Connor Cook being kind of your 1-2 at this point. Actually, you may have Goff 2, I don't necessarily know. Um, It seems like even though we may not have a lot of other top end talent, it seems like there's a lot of guys that should at least kick around the league in backup roles for a while.
2: Yeah, and I think we saw a couple of guys that are going to do that. In Jeff Driscoll, uh, out of Louisiana Tech, I think he, I think he impressed with the mental part of his game. Uh, he's, he's always had the physical talent, just hasn't always you know clicked together. Uh, a guy that I saw the week before, Vernon Adams, down at the Shrine Game, uh, the MVP of the Shrine Game. I really like his his game. He he has fun playing. He's got that that sort of joy de vivre of, of Cam Newton while he's out there, and the players responded to it. Problem is he's five ten and a buck ninety. Uh, and doesn't even look that big. Uh, so he's certainly going to get questioned uh, for his size, but I think he's a guy that could be a, a stable backup like that. Uh, just, you know, there's, there's a lot of those middling talents. Uh, it depends on your philosophy, too. What are you looking for? Are you looking for a backup guy who's not going to threaten your starter and, and can come in and play two quarters if your starter gets knocked out and not lose the game for you? Or are you looking for a guy that's your backup and you want to develop him into an eventual starter? I don't think there's many of those guys in this draft, and I think that's where a lot of teams look, and it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out because a lot of the, the middle class of quarterbacks here, they're, they're not those high upside guys, and I think it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because I, I really don't have a feel for that yet. I, I don't like any of many of them, Guys uh, kind of like Jacoby Brissett and Kevin Hogan. They're, they're, they were just wasting my time, quite honestly, uh, and, and I saw guys the week before that, too, doing that. Uh, Joel Stave, oh, my God. What a nightmare. So yeah, there's there's some semblance of talent there, but it's it's not a class where you're looking at, at getting a lot of future NFL starters out of it, I don't think.
1: Jeff, I was just going to ask you about Jacoby and just give you, you know, it, it's day two of the draft next year. It's a third round, and Detroit's up, and they take Jacoby in the third round. What do you do to your phone at that point?
2: Oh, my God, it's going into Lake Michigan because I'll be at the draft. and And the Lake is a good, probably – thousand yards away from where the draft is and the phone's going in there. Uh you I still I, got that toss you? It when I was down there, I thought Jake Coker was the best quarterback on the South. Uh and that that's more of a knock on the competition than it was an endorsement of Coker, although I, I did like a lot of the things that he did. Uh I really did. I, I people are thinking I'm nuts about that, but he and Dak Prescott are the two guys that I think have the developmental upside that we saw down in Mobile. And and if the Lions take one of those and they're absolutely in the market for a developmental number two, uh, I'd, I'd be okay with that.
0: Jeff, I'll tell you, if you end up making that 1,000-yard uh, throw into the lake, you might have a first-round grade on your arm at some point. Well, you will for me. Yeah.
2: Hey, hey, I did throw the javelin in high school, so I, I still there got a go. little bit left. <laughs> Teddy
0: Bradshaw, there you go. <laughs> Not bad at all. Jeff, I appreciate you joining us today. We'll catch up soon, all right?
2: Sounds great.
0: Thanks, guys. All right. Jeff Risden from RealGM.com. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Jeff Risden. And always love talking to him. He pretty much tells you exactly you know, exactly what he thinks about just about every prospect.
1: Oh, that's exactly right. Jeff's a great guy. Definitely follow him. It was great to meet him. He um, was his ninth year down at Mobile. We need to start calling him the mayor of Mobile, man. Yeah, we really do, don't we? Yeah, we, we make do that
0: stick. we do let's uh let's dig into the ITP glossary here with the term that has kind of been buzzing around a lot the last okay. couple days uh because of uh you know something that we ran on Brian stork uh from the AFC championship game and that's the concept uh, of a silent count and I think it's something that you know a lot of people are confused about how does it work mark you were a quarterback on one end of that exchange tell us a little bit about it
1: Right. There's a couple of different ways that a team can do a silent count. I mean, first of all, the reason that you use it 95% of the time is crowd noise. Um, You're in a hostile environment. You're playing in Arrowhead Stadium out in Denver, places like that, where you can't hear the signals, even if you're standing next to the quarterback, it's just that loud. So you use what's called a silent count. Um, Rather than, you know, saying on HUD or on the second HUD or whatever – there's going to be some sort of nonverbal motion or cue that the ball is about to be snapped. Teams can do it in a lot of different ways. Let's take when you're under center. There are ways that you can do it sometimes with a nudge from the quarterback to the backside of the center that he's ready to take the snap, and then there will be either a nod or a twist of the head that you'll see from the center. Um, to the signal to the rest of the offensive players that the ball is about to be snapped. Sometimes it's a head nod up and down. Sometimes it's a twist to the left and then back ahead. But there are ways that you can do it that way. When the quarterback's in shotgun, it's obviously a little bit tougher for him to indicate to the center that he's ready. So sometimes it's a lift of the leg. The center will have his head between the legs. He'll look back. He'll see the lift. Then he'll pick his head up ball gets snapped sometimes they don't task the center with looking for that they ask a guard to do that so a, the right guard or the left guard they'll be looking back at the quarterback they'll get the signal that the quarterback's ready he'll then tap the center then it's time to snap the football now the issue with the stork piece that phil Kibby, who did a great job on the article for inside the Pilot.com, i would implore people to read it The issue was not so much that Brian Stork in that game against Denver was using the head bob. It was that there was absolutely no variety in it. You need to change it up at least once or twice because by late second quarter, Denver's defensive ends were just gunning off the head bob. They knew it was just up and down in time to go. So they were getting great starts off the edges against those tackles. And when you've got fast guys like DeMarcus Ware. Getting a head start, it makes it just that much tougher to block them. And this is an issue that for Stork and for this New England offense dates back to last season. When they had that horrible Monday night game against Kansas City in Arrowhead, there was a a head bob like this. Tom Bahali got a head start, got a strip sack of Brady. And I I wrote about it at that time and just said that they got to change it up a little bit. And they didn't change it up. So this wasn't an issue. And you know, there's been some talk on the Twitter timeline that, oh, you know, we don't know what a silent count is, or you know, we're just discovering a silent cadence and we're saying that he was tipping him off. No, what we're really talking about, what Phil did a great job illustrating was this was just an indication that they were running the silent count and they just didn't vary it enough. Even if you do it just once or twice, draw an offside penalty, it'll slow it down a little bit. Oh. It's a problem with playing on the road and You know, when you think back to Week 16 and 17 when New England didn't close out those games and win home field advantage, this is one way in which it reared its head.
0: Is is a potential reason why that silent count was not varied uh, just because it also increases the potential for a false start by the offense?
1: That's one reason. I mean, I don't know exactly how the decisions get made for New England. Like, to you know, who decides to snap count? Is it a call from the sidelines? I'm assuming it's Tom Brady. I don't know if it's just familiarity. I don't know if it's just the speed of the game and everything's flying around you and you're just going what you're comfortable with. I don't know if that's it. They were worried about, you know, it's first and 10 and you're pinned in your own end zone, near your own end zone, near your own goal line. Then you get an offsides penalty. It's now first and 15 in that already raucous crowd. is just that much more amped up for that next play. I don't know. But for whatever reason, it wasn't done. You would expect it to at least get changed at least once by somebody the change wasn't made, the variety wasn't there, and it paid off for Denver in a big way.
0: Yeah, I mean, as you can see, you saw the pressure that Denver was able to bring off the edge and uh, definitely was a major factor in that game. let us uh, We've got about six, seven, eight minutes left. Who knows? We've got plenty of time left, I guess. But we do have the Super Bowl coming up uh, in, what was it, four days now? Yeah, we're getting pretty close at this point. And I figured, you know what? What better time to share some of our favorite Super Bowl stories? Pretty sure everyone has at least a couple. Uh, Do you want me to start off or should you go, Mark? Go for it. All right. I'm going to tell one. This is a tough one for me to tell, actually. I was down and I was living in New York at the time. It was the uh, winter of 07 into 2008. Okay. So we're talking uh, Super Bowl 42 here. And I'm someone, I grew up just outside Boston, and especially at that point in my life, I mean, we're talking just rabid Patriots fan there. It's, you know, I was, you know, I'm I'm literally, I'm all jacked up. You have an undefeated team. You're ready to go. You're feeling great about yourself. And you're in New York City playing the Giants. And so I'm sitting there. I'm like, this is the best opportunity in the world, potentially. And so I go out. I buy a brand new Randy Moss jersey. I'm, you know, all decked out. I'm ready to go and I was living at the time with uh, one of my buddies. We were living downtown, actually kind of just south of Midtown. We were at 32nd and—actually, maybe 36th and 6th, I think it was. But we went all the way uptown uh, to watch the game. We went to 97th and Amsterdam, all the way up on the Upper West Side. If you don't know New York well, it's about, I would say, probably 6 miles, maybe between 5 and 7 miles, somewhere in that ballpark. Halftime of the game, Mark, my buddy who's a Giants fan— says and keep in mind the Patriots are up 7-3 at this point but he's a Giants fan says Chuck if the Giants win this game we're gonna stop at every bar on the way home and and get a drink there and of course you know I'm I've already had a couple beers maybe a couple more than that and I'm sitting there going yeah we're up 7-3 to why not let's load it up we'll be fine here well of course you know David Tyree happens and you know my world kind of implodes on me that night it's generally you know regarded as I think probably one of the bottom 5 nights of my life to that point at least and we have to start walking back down to our place because I you know I'm, I'm not going to you know renege on a bet you got to pull through there
1: right
0: so we start walking back I'm wearing a Randy Moss jersey walking down you know 7th Avenue in New York City I'm getting stuff thrown at me from cabs I got people yelling at me I got people you know saying things i can't even say like even though we're not on the radio here i just don't want to say them because they're generally awful things and i'm sitting there you know for the first couple blocks i'm like oh we just need to get to a bar so that we can you know get out of here or something we'll go to one bar and call it a night so we go into the first bar that we see and i'll tell you from then on every single bar we went to i didn't pay for a single drink really every bartender felt so bad for me because i'm walking around in this goddamn Randy Moss shirt just you know looking like an idiot in the middle of New York I didn't pay for a drink they're all just like yeah you guys take them do whatever you want so we wow. you know we made it pretty far actually we didn't quite get it all the way back home but you know we stayed out legitimately probably four or five six hours we made it until you know four four thirty a.m and it was not the most fun I ever had the next day at work but let me tell you it turned out a lot better than I thought it was going to, you know, cause I was kind of expecting the worst and on the street, it was bad. But once you got into the bars, it was absolutely outstanding. Uh, you know, definitely had to uh, pound a couple Advil and a, a few gallons of water the next day, but pretty good time. All in all, pretty good wow. time. What, what about nice. you? What,
1: what What do you got? Um, I I got time for two quick ones. How about that? Yeah, let's do it. We'll start with more of a kind of happier one. It that's And again, you know, Chuck and I are both Patriots fans at the core, so they are going to involve around you know Patriots games. But we start with Super Bowl 36 that went over the Rams, and that was my final year of law school. And you know that was kind of a wacky ride as Patriots fans. You know the Brady bled so thin, is you know never saw that Super Bowl run coming. And so my team's in the Super Bowl, so. Did what most people do when you're in law school—you throw a big house party. So we had lots of people there, lots of food. We had like a six-foot sub delivered. It, it was a fun time. And when Vinatieri splits the uprights, we got a crowd full of people downstairs. I know exactly what I need to do at that moment, and that is get to my laptop and start ordering merchandise. I thought you were going to say tweeting. No, this is tw- pre-Twitter. Yeah, Twitter man. I'm an old, <laughs> old guy. So I get to the laptop, I get on NFL.com, and I'm like throwing stuff in the cart. And I'm trying to, like, buy it. And, again, we this was a party situation. My team just won the Super Bowl that I never expected to see. Um, so I've had a couple of adult beverages. And I'm struggling doing it. I mean, the struggle is real. And I ask for some help. So the woman I'm dating, at the, uh, who I was dating at the wait, time, who's not my wife.
0: You couldn't type your order
1: in? No. <laughs> just wait for a second, okay? I ask her for some help, and she comes upstairs. And she's like, why do you want seven Rams Super Bowl champion hats? I had dumped <laughs> seven Rams hats into my shopping cart. Thank God. I mean, were they discounted at all, least? They were still full price. I say this all the time. I am the luckiest man on earth, and that's just one of eight million examples of her stopping me from doing something extremely stupid.
0: Yeah, that so, would that would have been a tough day when you uh, got that package yeah, and you're sitting there that, going,
1: "What, what am I doing I with this?" Dollars <laughs> on Rams hats. What, so that's one. The other quick story is that Super Bowl you were just talking about. I was working for a law, a law firm at the time. And the senior partner I was working for was a Giants fan. So you can imagine I get into off work that Monday, that next morning, and I get called into the conference room to talk about a case. And it's like, you know, 9.05. I'm not in the best mood to begin with. I barely slept that night because of that loss. And I walk into the conference room and I went straight from reception, didn't even stop at my office. And I think this was by design because I go in and the other senior partner's there and he's like, oh, um, I didn't even really need to see about it. I think it's no big deal. Just go about your day. I come back to my office, and my entire office is in Giants decor. Like, everything. We're talking, like, towels, bedspreads. It's just, like, Giants, everything just covered everywhere. It's like and your worst nightmare. It really was. Like, after the night that I'd had and seeing all that and how they lost that game, just miserable. It, miserable. was, this, the, was this,
0: this This was the day you decided to stop being a lawyer, I'm guessing.
1: No, I took a lot more losses before I finally gave up the ghost there. But this was this probably started me down that path.
0: Yeah, it's it's that's a uh, pretty traumatic experience. I think everyone will agree on that. Uh, but we're just about wrapped up for the day, Mark. We're done.
1: Nice show, nice show. We we gotta get the mayoral mobile back on of some sometime. Yeah,
0: maybe we uh we grab him around uh combine time. How about that?
1: Or well, when he launches his mayoral campaign for mobile next year.
0: We'll write him in anyways, even if he doesn't write. Yeah, we can post for him, right? We certainly will. There we go. Thank you very much to all of our listeners. Uh, we certainly appreciate it. As always, make sure that you. Uh, follow, which one is on Twitter? Is it follow on Twitter or like? You follow, follow on, Twitter, on Twitter, like
1: on Facebook. Just you know, if you see our stuff, say nice things about us. Just, How about that, just buy do, my
0: book. Do good things for us online. Buy Mark's book. It is up on our website. It only costs fourteen ninety nine in paperback, four ninety nine in ebook. Uh, Make sure that you do that. We really appreciate it. We spent a ton of time on it. We're back tomorrow with our regular Quick Kicks podcast. We'll see you later.